Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of the Doc NYC Festival. On this episode, I talk to director Alex Gibney and Belfast producer Trevor Burney. They've collaborated on several projects, including Mia Maxima Culpa, about sex abuse in the Catholic Church, and an ESPN 30 for 30 short called Ceasefire Massacre. Their most recent film, No Stone Unturned, examines an unsolved case of mass murder in Northern Ireland. The film uses documents leaked from a police investigation. Now the police are pushing back against the filmmakers. On August 31st, police raided the Belfast homes and office of Bernie and journalist Barry McCaffrey. Bernie describes the aggressive tactics. They had a warrant to search, a bit like our home, uh, they had a warrant to search anything that was in relation to No Stone Unturned. And, uh, but when they got to the office, just like our home, they decided then it was a, a dragnet search and they began to go through everyone's desk, everyone's drawers. They began taking away computers from people who had absolutely no relation to the film. Alex Gibney, who's based in New York, is also wanted for questioning. When I heard about what, what happened to, to Trevor and to Barry, and, and also the fact that I was a suspect, it, it, uh, it raised concerns about uh, a growing atmosphere of uh, attempted intimidation of uh, journalists and filmmakers. Gibney has a long track record of telling stories concealed by governments. His Oscar-winning film, Taxi to the Dark Side, investigated U.S.-led torture programs. We Steal Secrets looked at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, and Zero Days exposed U.S. cyber attacks. Gibney spoke about Zero Days on Pure Nonfiction, Episode 16. In the case of No Stone Unturned, the backdrop is Northern Ireland's long conflict known as the Troubles. For decades, Protestant and Catholic paramilitary groups waged war against each other until a peace accord was signed in 1998. No Stone Unturned focuses on an incident in 1994 when members of the Protestant Ulster Volunteer Forces, or UVF, targeted a Catholic pub in the rural town of Lochan Island. Pubgoers were watching a World Cup soccer match on TV when three UVF members pulled up in a car. There was a driver, a man who held the door, and a third man who fired an automatic weapon, killing six civilians and injuring five. The attack was over in seconds. All six men who died were Catholics. The eldest, Barney Green, was 87. His nephew, Dan Macrina, who was 59, perished with him. The other victims were father of four, Eamon Byrne, father of three, Malcolm Jenkinson, father of two, Adrian Rogan, and single man, Patrick O'Hare. The attack appeared to be revenge for the murder of three UVF members killed by Catholic paramilitaries a few days earlier. Even by the standards of violence in Northern Ireland, the Lochan Island massacre was shocking. At the time, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland vowed that authorities would bring the perpetrators to justice. To those who have killed these people, you are going to be caught sooner or later, the RUC, 
never give up and you will be caught and you will spend long years in prison. Thank you very much. But that didn't happen. 24 years later, no one has been brought to justice. No Stone Unturned documents a shoddy police investigation in which evidence was destroyed and key suspects were barely questioned. Years later, the police ombudsman investigated whether there was a cover-up to protect an informant. Gibney is tenacious at trying to expose the names of the accused perpetrators. In the film, he describes his obstacles and a turning point. But the investigators weren't talking. To protect witnesses, they were willing to tell us the plot of the story, but not the names of the characters. So the ombudsman's investigation was a bewildering thicket of letters and numbers. Person A, Person M, Police Officer 12. Who were these people? The answer came in the form of another anonymous tip. In 2011, someone upset by the Lockin Island cover-up leaked a document to journalist Barry McCaffrey. The leaked document came through the post. I still don't know to this day what pricked somebody's conscience to, to send it. Maybe it was the fact that they, they knew we were working on, on, on this story and that the, the families weren't getting the answers or hadn't been given the answers. With that document and others, McCaffrey and Gibney were able to identify the three suspects, who all remain at large today. The alleged shooter still lives in Lockin Island alongside the victim's relatives. In the film, McCaffrey tells Gibney how he confronted the main police investigator, Albert Carroll, who now lives in retirement. I got the distinct impression that Mr. Carroll wanted to know more what we knew about him than what he was going to tell us about Lock and Island. Did you show Albert Carroll the leaked report in which he was named? Yes. What was his reaction when he saw how much you knew about his role? He shit himself. <laughs> yes. He was very defensive. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, he was very defensive and edgy. No Stone Unturned was released a year ago. You can watch it on iTunes, Amazon, and other platforms. But instead of prompting arrests of the suspected killers, it led to the arrests of the documentary team less than two months ago on August 31st. Last week, I invited Gibney and producer Trevor Burney to screen the film at New York's IFC Center. Afterwards, we discussed it in front of a live audience. I asked Bernie to describe his background and that of Barry McCaffrey. They've both worked for multiple outlets, including the investigative news website, thedetail.tv. Well, I think Barry and I probably have a very similar career trajectory in that we have been immersed in covering the troubles from probably the uh, mid-80s. Barry worked in newspapers and I worked in newspapers and uh, covering issues such as Lock and Island and, and uh, similar issues. Um, so it was Barry really who came to me first and began to talk to me about it. And then he had been talking to the Lock and Island relatives of the, the, the people who died. In about 2011, um, we had established um, the detail taught TV, which is uh, which was 
funded by an organisation out of New York called Atlantic Philanthropies, a philanthropic organisation. And Barry had come to work for us. And uh, when he came to work for us, he began talking about Lockin Island. And it was something very close to him because he had relatives who lived down in the area. And uh, myself and Alex had just uh, been working on Maya Maxima Culpa at the time. And then Alex is going to say I led him into a... <laughs> a story that um, is still ongoing many years later, but um, I began to talk to Alex about it, and we 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 could see the cinematic value in in the story and the importance of the story. So Barry has been around and is a very well known journalist in in Belfast, and um, you know Lock and Island has come to be very much a central part of his work. Mm. So uh, Alex. Uh, you got drawn into the story through uh, Trevor. You did a short for ESPN called The Ceasefire Massacre about the World Cup game that was taking place uh, um, on the day this massacre uh, took place. And I've heard you describe that you're not only drawn to the story, as you say in the film, um, because of the, the obvious emotions that are stirred by the story, but... I've heard you describe that you also see it as representing uh, wider implications for the way justice is served. Well, not only justice is served, but you know, how do we reckon with the past? Um, and uh, I, I think for those of us who live here, you know, the, the Kavanaugh hearings would certainly be a reminder of that. But I think the past, in a way, is. Um, unless you reckon with it, unless you find a way to deal with it, uh, it comes back to haunt you in unexpected ways. And so, particularly with something like the Troubles, um, you know, if you leave matters unresolved and justice is not done and the truth is not told, um, you know, it, it, it haunts the victims and, and the society around it. And so that seemed to me to be something that was both peculiar to Lockin Island um, and and the troubles, but also more universal. It's something we all grapple with. And, and, and the other aspect of it that was interesting to me was that very often <laughs> governments have a vested interest in making sure that the past stays buried, um, that we move on to the future. As, as President Obama famously said in, in trying to reckon with uh, the torture um, uh, debate, he said, well, it's it's better to go forward rather than back. Let's not look back, Let's let's look forward, which if you think about it, um, much as I miss President Obama now, um, nevertheless, uh, you know, that wouldn't be much of a comfort to victims of a murder. It's like, well, let's just move forward. Let's let's forget about the past. So, you know, I think understanding and 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 figuring out how to reckon with those issues was was an important part of of, of doing this film. In addition to being moved by the struggle of the families, just to find out what happened. So. I want to come in a minute to what took place uh, just a couple months ago uh, around this film. But let me ask first, the film was released uh, last year it started at the New York Film Festival, I think played at the London Film Festival and is now available widely. What was the reaction to to people who have followed this case, the fact that you're finally naming the names of uh, the alleged killers. The story was front page news for for at least several days in in, in Northern Ireland. The the fact that we had named these guys and uh, um, was front page news for for several days. 
And uh, in in Lockin Island, the nearest cinema I think was sold out for about four weeks after the the release of the film in in November last year, um, which kind of indicates just what the local interest was. Um, so yeah, it, it it was significant. There is always concern about naming suspects, particularly in Northern Ireland. The BBC has has named. Uh, just recently, there's been the naming of the, the people who were responsible for the Birmingham bomb attacks back in the 70s. There's been names associated with the OMA bombing in 1998, another atrocity in which um, 29 people and two unborn twins died. And uh, so this isn't something new. Uh, I think that what really affected people was the way that Alex had put together the film um, and the power in the film and the... the the, the, what the storytelling that he had brought to it, and I think that, I think even those most seasoned, docu- you know, people who documented the troubles in Northern Ireland were surprised by um, the film and uh, just the level of knowledge and the levels of evidence that we will bring to it. And I think that that impacted and 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 kind of caused uh, a snowball effect in in, you know, it just built and built and built over the the weeks after the film was released. So yeah, I think that, and, and from that, the relatives brought huge amount of comfort in the fact that for the first time, they felt that the story had been told completely, that um, that everyone now knew what they knew and what they'd lived with for the previous 22 or 23 years at that stage, that everyone was aware that the people who actually were suspected of killing their relatives lived down the road, uh, lived within a three or four mile radius, and um, that they'd lived with this uh, shadow for all that time, and yet they had shown incredible dignity and respect, and uh, and and there hadn't been as much as a an insult hurled at these people, despite what they had perpetrated. So I think that there was a, a shock uh, value, despite Northern Ireland has come through. 30 years of conflict. I think there was a real shock factor with the film, and I think that that was represented by the response to it in the, in the days and weeks after its release. Yeah, let me just follow up on that very briefly. I mean, you know, I embarked on this film thanks to, thanks to Trevor. Um, um, not expecting to solve the murder or to, or, to th- or become as close to solving the murder as I think is possible uh, for people who are not part of the law enforcement community. Um, and it's to, Bar- uh, it's to uh, Trevor's great credit and Barry's great credit, you know, in terms of the spade work that they had done to help us, you know, get to that point that, that we really were able to solve it in a way that I think is pretty compelling, at least compelling enough to embarrass the authorities about why they didn't get there. Um, so, so that, I think, was, was interesting in and of itself and surprising. The other thing I think that, that we should point out was that part of what um, we did in the making of the film was to make sure that we went to the ombudsman's office and also the police in uh, Northern Ireland to let them know that we were going to name names and if there was any concern by the police that um, they felt that, you know, those suspects might be at risk, they could take steps to do so or they could take steps to try to enjoy the film if they felt it was necessary. So we we were pretty assiduous, um, even though you know the families hadn't gotten justice for many years, we were pretty assiduous about trying to protect the rights of those accused. So um, 
let's talk about what happened on uh, August 31st uh, of this year. Uh, Trevor, can, can you describe what took place? Well, uh, the the last weekend in August is a, is a bank holiday weekend in the UK and Ireland. And uh, we woke up uh, at about five to seven uh, on the Friday morning. And uh, my wife actually thought um, it was the milkman coming to wrap the door looking for money, looking to be paid. And she opened the window and said, um, oh, my God, there's a lot of cars in the drive. And then... There's a lot of police cars in the drive. Why are the police here? And uh, I have to say, I immediately knew that it was due to Alex Gibney in the Lock and Island film. And uh, <laughs> thought, what time is it in New York? Can I ring? <laughs> and worrying about what was happening in somewhat New Jersey at the same time. But anyway, I um, um, so I immediately knew. I said, listen, it's it's Lock and Island. So um, she went down and opened the door and. Um, uh, I would try to ring her lawyer and uh, came through. How many police? Well, we we reckoned that there was at least um, somewhere between 25 and 30 police fully armed um, uh, in, you know, fully kitted out um, for a search um, with kind of boiler suits and guns and... Um, and at the same time, or roughly on the same day, uh, a similar visit was taking place to Barry McCaffrey. Well, yeah, well, Barry, my house was full of sort of five kids, four adults. Barry is a single man living sort of about three miles away from me. And um, I had no idea. I mean, I was suspected. I was worried for everyone else who was involved in the film. When I was going through the ra trying to rationalize what was going on working out, you know, there's, there's, there's several other people within our company that I don't want to name who were involved in the thinking. I was thinking, oh my God, are they doing this to everybody? Or is this just me? Or who else is involved? And then suddenly police were going through the bedrooms and I wanted to get dressed. And they said, no, you can't get dressed on your own. And they had to send poor, some poor unfortunate young policeman up. Uh, to watch me getting dressed and brushing my teeth and getting showered. They didn't allow me to get showered to, to, to brush my teeth and wash and get ready. So, um, and uh, the relatives from London that they were there, they were watching all of this going on. And I think at that stage, they thought that we were some sort of drug dealers or money launderers or something. And, and I remember the guy, look at the guy, James, my nephew, going, you must be some sort of fucking, you know, this can't happen over a film. Why were police going through the doors? And um, But I mean, there were, there were also the same number of people over at Barry's house, yes? Yeah, so the same number of people were at Barry's house. And then our office in downtown Belfast, they were going, th they were going through the doors there as well. So, so total, what do you reckon? How many cops? We, we've, we've calculated and in, 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 in bringing together, there's over at least 100 police officers involved um, on the day. Um, uh, and three sites in my house and Barry's house. So Barry thought, Barry told me later that he, he went through the similar experience and he just thought they were coming to search the house. So he kind of said to them, well, listen, when you're finished the search through the keys through the door, and they said, no, 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 you're not going away. We're arresting you. So they arrested Barry and, and I was arrested in my living room. And, uh, and then so you were questioned for the length of the day, roughly? We were taken away and by, you know, instead of leaving off my eight-year-old daughter at school, by 20 past eight in the morning, I was in a police cell and where I was left then for four hours. Um, and then I was taken out of there and brought to a series of interviews across the next six hours, which, you know, were, were, were complete sham. 
And uh, I only realized when I was brought from this cell that I kind of looked around to my left and I could see a pair of boots that I recognized as Barry McCaffrey's boots that he normally wears. So I knew then, okay, so Barry's here. And uh, I don't know who else was going to be around. And we were in this holding center of about 50 cells and they, they had cleared everybody else out. So they left it just for the two of us to be comfortable. And um, so we spent about 15 hours in the police station. But unbeknownst to me then, they were until my lawyer arrived, they were in our, our offices. And, and again, about 30 or 40 police officers uh, arrived at the office at about 8 a.m. And uh, they had a warrant to search, a bit like our home. Uh, they had a warrant to search anything that was in relation to No Stone Unturned. And, uh, but when they got to the office, just like our home, they decided then it was a, a dragnet search and they began to go through everyone's desk, everyone's drawers. They began taking away computers from people who had absolutely no relation to the film. Uh, they, they, the most invasive thing is that they then said they were wanted to take away our server. Now we have a company of about 15 years, everything on the server linked to Films are making in Colombia and Honduras and, and, and all over the world that uh, they sucked every single item out of the server over the course of the 15 hours. In fact, they Leaving wanted, you a copy or just... Well, they wanted to take the server itself, except our, our, our colleagues really strapped themselves and said, no, listen, you can't take the server. Uh, we're making a film um, uh, with street gangs in San Pedro Sula where there are people who are admitting to murder and who are unmasked and then they're masked and we couldn't... So, they were trying to protect all of the sources and all the people who have been very, very brave enough to speak to us all around. So let me pause you uh, there just because I want to make use of this time. Alex, let me t turn to you. I know that uh, your lawyers have been uh, in touch with authorities uh, in the UK. What have those conversations been like? Well, I, I followed the lead of, of, um, of uh, Trevor and Barry. I mean, uh, we learned by I learned by Trevor and Barry. I mean, I was on my when I heard about this. I was I was in Moscow on my way back home, and I heard about it in the airport and started tweeting. But I uh, I learned that um, there were charges being considered. Nobody's been charged with anything yet, but there are charges being considered um, relating to the theft of documents, and also possibly, as I understand it, the Official Secrets Act, a violation of the Official Secrets Act. So. Um, which, you know, um, can lead to a term of up to two years in prison. Uh, now, I... Has that uh, been meted out to journalists in, in recent memory? Yeah. <clears throat> there have been attempts, uh, very few attempts, uh, to, to go after journalists and under the Official Secrets Act, but there were some attempts under, under, under uh, Thatcher's time, and uh, there was a famous case where uh, after the Falklands War, somebody leaked a document to a journalist in The Guardian and uh, uh, they tried to go after them. But the, every attempt on the Official Secrets Act is a failed, um, which means, it makes this even more inexplicable about why the hell they're doing this. Yeah, so anyway, um, not too long after this, I knew I had to go to uh, London, which is part of the United Kingdom, as Northern Ireland is, and so I did, I, I had to hire a lawyer and find out indeed whether or not I was a suspect, as I had been told it was likely I was. And indeed, the police confirmed that I was also a suspect. And they wanted, and they were planning to arrest me. Um, 
It would have been awkward if you had to take refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy alongside Julian Assange, the subject of your previous well, I, film. I, I knew that one was crowded. I was looking around for another possibility. You know, Colombia might have been available. It's hard to know. <laughs> and, and indeed, I, I should note that the, the firm that I hired originally represented Julian Assange, so that was a nice bit of harmony. Um, so, I mean, Alex, it makes me think of a recent film of yours, Zero Days, which was, which was uncovering uh, uh, documents that the US government uh, had not previously made public about the Nitro Zeus program, the cyber attack, America's cyber attack um, on Iran. When you were dealing with those kinds of uh, uh, leaked documents, um, how does that case compare to this one? Well, those weren't documents, that was testimony. But in, in, in any event, you know, also in that case, you know, we made it known to the US government that we had this information at our disposal and said, you know, uh, if, uh, if there's any reason you feel there should be harm, they would cause people harm or put people in harm's way, you should let us know. We never heard from them. But, you know, let's just say that Jim Risen also was leaned on pretty heavily. The New York Times reporter. New York Times reporter to give up uh, his sources. And there was a brief period where the Obama administration was considering going after, I believe it was a, a, an AP reporter, um, also with the, for the purpose of trying to make them reveal sources. Because, you know, part of the essence of this is, you know, filmmakers, journalists get leaked material or find out information from people which is classified or secret, but may be in the public interest. And, you know, journalists serve an important role in terms of trying to show that sometimes governments keep secrets for reasons that are not good. They're not protecting people, in fact, except for the government officials who've done corrupt things. So, um, but for that reason, uh, governments tend to want to go after not only leakers but increasingly journalists. And so, you know, when I heard about what what, what happened to to Trevor and to Barry, and and also the fact that I was a suspect, it it uh, it raised concerns about uh, a growing atmosphere of uh, attempted intimidation of uh, journalists and filmmakers. So, in in the case of No Stone Unturned and this questioning, this investigation, what what do you think is going on here? In in your film, now a year ago, you've named some names. These were names that were already known to the authorities because the documents you're reporting on are documents that the authorities have. Um, why a year later? Uh, do you think there's been pressure put on this case? Well, I think Northern Ireland's uh, uh, conflict was supposed to end with the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Um, but unfortunately, uh, conflict has been uh, is still continuing by other means. And I think that there are still many people in the shadows who still want to prevent films like No Stone Unturned being made and, and the truth in films like No Stone Unturned coming into the public domain. And I think that um, part of what happened to us certainly has got to be about the uh, frustration and that um, the profile of this film has has taken and that um, many people around the world who can now can access this film can see exactly what was going on in Northern Ireland at that time and innocent people were, were being 
murdered and the killers were being protected and are still being protected. That is the uh, the problem. And I think that Northern Ireland, as Alex has, uh, has explained, is that is is just having a difficulty in dealing with the past. And I think that um, there's no doubt that our arrests were about trying to send a chill factor to other journalists, to whistleblowers, to people who are prepared to provide documentation, like the, the documents that Barry was sent. And um, I think that that's that's a universal global issue. I don't think it's is just about Northern Ireland, although Northern Ireland is in a in a particularly difficult position at the moment. And I really don't think that if we were BBC journalists or Times journalists in London or Guardian journalists, that this would have happened to us. I think that this is a, a is um, is peculiar to Northern Ireland and uh, unfortunately puts Northern Ireland right up there with Turkey and Myanmar and Russia and and and, and what's going on in the Saudi Arabian embassy in, in Turkey right now and, and what happened there. And I think that uh, it, it just seems to me that um, there are still those in the shadows who really want to, to pursue this, this campaign to ensure that um, journalists don't get access to the truth and don't provide that uh, truth to, to, to the world outside Northern Ireland. Alex, let me pick up on a point that uh, Trevor was saying, that you know, this pressure might not be put on the BBC or The Guardian. And what we've seen in recent years in the media landscape is a shrinkage of larger networks of, uh, of news, those big organizations that dominated news for the late 20th century. They shrunk in the early 21st century. A lot of what's filled the breach are independent documentary filmmakers who don't have the staffs of lawyers or the resources um, that an ABC News would or NBC or, or, or BBC. Um, can, so can you reflect on the vulnerability of, of independent documentary makers? Yeah, I, I think it is true. Uh, and, and not just documentary filmmakers, but also journalists who who do the kind of investigative work that used to be part of the big networks. But, you know, part of what has been done, particularly at the network level and, and sometimes at the, at the papers, though I, I would commend a lot of the magazines like The New Yorker or, or the Atlantic, you know, elsewhere in terms of continuing to do that investigative stuff. But, you know, it, it's the independent people who are most at risk because there's no organization behind you. It's just you. Um, and, and I think in this case, that was very much known. I mean, we know about the case of Laura Poitras, and for many, many years, she was harassed uh, going in and out of the country. This was even before she'd reported on Edward Snowden, just Way from before. her days of reporting in Iraq. Yes, uh, from my country, my country, um, and and they felt that um, that she had been part of, um, uh, you know, uh, she didn't know why she was being targeted. Over time, it came out that 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 the authorities felt that she had been part of a, 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 a of literally helping. Um, a group in Iraq target American soldiers, which was completely false and baseless, but nevertheless went after her. Um, and uh, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And thankfully, some organizations, notably um, you know, the organization that Laura Poitras works for, they have a, a, a fund for journalists and filmmakers who are you know, caught in these circumstances, also places like the RCFP, the Reporters Committee for the Freedom on the Press, and others, you know, are are trying to to 
um, present you know pro bono legal services to uh, independents because it's becoming increasingly a problem. The independents are doing good work, but they're really much more vulnerable than the big organizations. Yeah, and I think that that is you know it's a very good point. You know we. Our lawyers went straight into court in order to try to protect the stuff that they they had taken from the office, and um, um, but it was a very sobering conversation um, when I subsequently met them, and they said, you know, that the the legal bill for what we're doing is probably going to reach somewhere in around one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, just to try to protect the materials. So when I was in when I was in custody, they were questioning me. Our lawyers went into court to say that the uh, execution of the warrant in our office uh, wasn't being properly um, uh, executed in that they were taking materials that quite clearly had nothing to do with No Stone Unturned, you know, taking, our, taking everything out of our server, taking drives about films that had nothing to do with, quite, quite clearly had nothing to do with No Stone Unturned. And uh, the Lord Chief Justice in, in, in Northern Ireland at the time then granted an interim injunction that uh, uh, that the police they had to put everything that they've taken from our office in sealed bags, and the detectives cannot go anywhere near those sealed bags right now. Now we've launched what's called a judicial review in order to try to say that the application for the warrant to search our homes and arrest us, the um, the granting of those warrants and the execution of the warrants were unlawful on all three counts that were unlawful. Now if we end up Winning that case, we still will face a legal bill of £150,000, of which we have no insurance for. Can you sue the state? We can sue the state, but, you know, everything, all the computers that were taken from our, our, our desks, my computer, my wife's phone, my daughter's phone, my, 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 my 16-year-old daughter is uh, delighted in the fact that they took a USB key, which she says has all our science homework on, but I, I doubt it. But she continues to claim that our science homework was on that USB key, um, which was a lollipop-shaped thing. And um, But we've been advised that that's going to, by the time the police hand this back, it'll be at least two years. Um, so... Um, uh, we are we are being punished right now. Uh, we have had uh, a, it's had a detrimental effect on our on our ability to be able to do our job, and there are many sources which Alex knows of that helped us in this film, and those sources know very well that the police now know who they are, and in terms of the chill effect, that is a, a hugely detrimental to our ability to be able to do our job as journalists and filmmakers. And uh, there, are, there, are, there are many people out there who are very nervous about exactly what was done. So this is costing us a huge amount of money um, right now and will continue to do in order to defend journalism. And, and we are not the New York Times or the Times in London. And, uh, but we feel that there is a principle, obviously, and importance to our sources and everything that we've been trying to do at the company, that we, this is something that we have to do, but it's, um, it's, um, it's worrying. And Alex, uh, where do you stand in your negotiation with being questioned? Um, I was successfully able to avoid being hooded and, and, and whisked to Belfast upon arrival at Heathrow. <laughs> um, we discussed with the police that, you know, on my, on my next trip to London uh, that uh, I would at least make myself available for um, for questioning but we'll see what the in the meantime what the result of the judicial review is but that's I still so far as I'm aware I still remain a suspect
I want to thank Alex Gibney and Trevor Burney for speaking with me. Their film, No Stone Unturned, is now available on iTunes, Amazon, and other platforms. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you love nonfiction films, look out for America's largest documentary festival, Doc NYC. If you're a professional filmmaker or looking to become one, check out the Doc NYC Pro Conference. Both festival and conference last eight days, running from November 8th to 15th. For more information, go to docnyc.net. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.